Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Thank you, Carson, for reading for us this morning. I want to start off our time together this morning uh, just sharing about my buddy Pete from college. Pete uh, is one of my best friends, but is also a complete maniac. And uh, there's no story, no anecdote that you could tell me about Pete that I wouldn't believe. Everything was on the table for him. Uh, There was one time in college where we were playing Mario Kart, which is a video game, and someone had quipped, you know, I wonder if anyone could play Mario Kart for 24 straight hours. So Pete's a crazy person, and 24 hours later, we walk back into the room, and Pete has bloodshot eyes, and he's still playing Mario Kart. He's like, I did it. You know, I played for 24 straight hours. You can humanly do it. And we're kind of rolling our eyes at Pete, and it's "Ah, classic Pete, you know. After a a couple of these, we almost started throwing out challenges to him without him him knowing. So we were eating in the dining hall one day and said, you know, I wonder what would happen if someone ate dining hall pizza three meals a day for a full week. I wonder what that would do to someone's body. And Pete, a week later, about 15 pounds heavier and, uh, you know, had the life sucked out of his eyes, was like, you know, I, I did it. I dining hall pizza every day for a week. I don't feel great, but I did it. You know, and we're kind of roll our eyes and like, Pete, what is, you know, classic Pete rolling our eyes at, at Pete. I think the quintessential Pete moment was my senior year of college, uh, up at Grove City College, uh, guys, folks in our hall kind of threw a fall palooza, Okie palooza party in the fall. And it was a little bit like trunk or treat where every room on the hall that you went into had a different theme, you know, so there was a Jurassic Park room and a Cleveland Cavaliers room and different, different themes on the room, uh, every room in the hall. And the party's Friday night, and I'm in class Friday morning, and I overhear two, two girls that are sitting next to me just talking about, hey, are you going to Okipalooza? Are you going to be there? And they say yes, and I'm kind of listening in because we're, you know, kind of hosting the party. And, and one of the girls says, you know, I heard at one of the room there's going to be sand volleyball in the room. And uh, the other girl's like, sand volleyball? Like, is there going to be actual sand there? And the girl goes, yeah, I heard like there's actual sand there in the dorm room. And I, in the back of my head, I'm just listening in, and I'm like, that, that has to be Pete. Only Pete would bring in live sand to a room that he's going to have to stay in and live in the next eight months, you know, until he, until he graduates. And sure enough, I, I go back to the hall after class, and I open up Pete's door. He lived in a single. No one wanted to live with Pete. You know, he, we loved having him around, but not, didn't, no one wanted to live with him. He lived in a single. Open up his door, and Pete is fast asleep on the bed, and there's about four inches of sand covering his room. And Pete was asleep in the middle of the day. He had had a long night. There was a volleyball court about half a mile uh, on South Campus. 
And he took a five-gallon bucket and took dozens of trips, literally five gallons at a time, putting sand, stealing sand from the volleyball court and dumping it onto the tile floor in, in his room. And uh, it was just the class, I was like, Pete, this is just classic Pete, you know? Like, of course, Pete was the only person that I can think of that would, that would do this. The party was a lot of fun. It was great. We found sand, you know, on the hall for the next year. You know, I'm sure there's sand probably still there, you know, in his room. But you know, I, say, I say that story because I think sometimes we have folks in our life where we hear a story and we're not surprised by anything that we do. And I think sometimes, even for us, as we think about this morning, we think about this passage in Matthew 14, that if you've been around church for a while or you've read the Bible for a while, I think sometimes we can become desensitized to Jesus. Or around Christmas time or Easter, we can almost just roll our eyes and say, you know, I know Jesus was born. I kind of know that. What's, what's next? Or, I know Jesus died and rose from the dead at Easter time, but kind of, yeah, what's, what's the next thing? And as we, look, as we look at Matthew 14 and maybe a familiar passage to some of us, my encouragement and my hope is that we wouldn't just roll our eyes and say, of course Jesus walked on water. Of course he landed in Gennesaret and healed everyone who touched him. Of, co of course he's always teaching. He's always healing. My hope and prayer this morning is that we would listen to this story with fresh ears and fresh eyes. And if you're someone who's never heard this story before, I'm, I'm really excited that we would look at Jesus maybe in a new way and not just roll our eyes, classic Jesus, he's always doing miracles, but that we would look and be enamored and captivated by the person of Jesus and how he interacts with his disciples in Matthew 14. So where we'll go this morning, I'll walk through this passage, try to make it come to life a little bit, try to fill in um, a little bit with our imagination, and then really just have a few points of tension that I think I see the disciples and Jesus feel of kind of these, these two conflicting thoughts. We'll pull on a couple of those. My hope and prayer is that that'll land for us, that'll begin to uh, stimulate our thinking as we think about tension in our own lives. So it'll be, it'll be on the screen, but just broke it up into a couple, couple chunks. Uh, I want to start in verse 22 as we walk through this passage. It, it again says, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go on before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, and the boat by this time was already a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. And so kind of the crowd that Matthew talks about here, right before this passage, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people, that there's always crowds, no matter where Jesus goes, there's always crowds around him, and this day was no different, that thousands of people are gathering around Jesus to hear him teach, they just want to be around him. And earlier in Matthew 14, the crowds are hungry, and the disciples say, hey, we should feed, we should feed these folks, but we, we don't have any food, we only have five loaves and two fish. And they bring the loaves to Jesus, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it away, and thousands of people are fed. And it's not just classic Jesus, this is this unbelievable miracle. And so Jesus, right on the heels of that miracle, miracle is where we pick up, and Jesus makes his disciples go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake. The lake in this passage is the Sea of Galilee, and so Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dismiss the crowds, I'm gonna kind of finish up here, you guys get a head start, you go to the other side of the lake, and, and I'll meet up with you. So Jesus sends his disciples to the other side of the lake, and then he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. You know, I don't know how often Jesus spent time alone with the Father. It, you know, there's some recorded in scriptures. I don't know how often, I don't know what he prayed about, I don't know what exactly that looked like, but I love how Jesus sets the pace and time alone with the Father. As Champ had mentioned, I've been helping out with student ministry the last handful of months, and we had just finished a series on spiritual disciplines. We talked about reading our Bibles and scripture intake. We talked about 
prayer and kind of what that looks like. And then the last week we talked about solitude and meditation, kind of what it looks like to put those things together and to spend time with the Lord. And if you're anything like me and folks in student ministry, that if we were to ask the question, hey, so how's your prayer life going? How's your Bible reading plan going? Most of us would reply with some combination of, well, you know, it's, it's not as good as I want it to be. It's, it's okay, but it's not, it's not as bad. You know, it, it can sometimes feel like you're sitting in the dentist chair and you're getting your teeth flossed and my gums are bleeding red and, you know, the, the hygienist says, hey, like, so what are your flossing habits? And I'm like, I, I know darn well. Like, they know that I haven't flossed a lick, you know, like, and, and they, I'm like, well, you know, I had the same, I've been going to the dentist for a while, the same answer, well, I just don't floss as much as I should. And the reality is, is the last time that my teeth were flossed, I was sitting in this very chair six months ago, you know, and you were actually the one who, flo- who flossed me, you know, and, and, but it just has this, this vibe of, man, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just constantly disappointing God. You know, I, I don't do it as much as I should. God's probably pretty bummed out. He's pretty mad at me. He's probably pretty, pretty angry that I don't, I don't read. I don't do as well as I should. And I love how Jesus models time alone with the Father. And on one hand, I think following Jesus is much, much more than just checking a list and kind of praying and reading our Bible, kind of getting the checkbox for the day. But I also know this, on the other hand, that there's not a single person in my life that whose faith that I look up to has really strong, deep, rooted faith that doesn't regularly spend time with the Lord. Similarly, I can't think of a single couple, a single marriage in my life where folks have a great marriage, a great, intimate, great marriage where they haven't talked to their spouse in months. They haven't taken a date in years. They've never gone on vacation. I can't think of anyone with ripped biceps and six-pack abs who's like, well, you know, I, I really don't work out. Never eaten a salad. Just kind of McDonald's. It's great. You know, it works for me. That I think some of just the way that the Lord has set up the world to work is going to be consistency over time. And I love how in this passage, Jesus models time alone with the Father. And my hope and prayer is that this would even nudge us to, to spend time with the Lord and that I love how Jesus uh, sets the pace for us in that. So that was a quick kind of di- digression, but felt like it was needed. But as we hop back into the passage, Jesus is spending time alone with the Father. And if, if you remember in verse 24, he sends his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are listening. They obey Jesus. They do what Jesus told them to do. They get in the boat and they go to the other side. And it says that they're beaten by the waves and that the wind is against them. The first tension that I see in this passage that I think sometimes we might feel in our own life is I'm doing exactly what Jesus told me to do, but I'm beaten down and everything seems to be against me. That the disciples, Jesus told them to get in the boat to cross the other side. They listen, they obey. I did exactly what Jesus told me to do, but it still feels like everything is against me. It feels like I'm like rowing into this headwind and I'm straining at the oars, I'm trying, God, I'm trying to follow you, I'm trying to do the right thing, but man, it just feels really, really hard. It feels like it's one step forward and two steps back. I imagine the disciples were pretty frustrated, thinking, why did Jesus send us into this storm? He wanted to get to the other side. Why did, why did he do that? You know, I think in, in the midst of this tension, I love how Jesus' response, which we'll read here in a moment, Jesus' his response isn't to look at his disciples and be like, I got gotcha. you bunch of suckers. You listen to me. I, t- t- I totally pulled one over. His response isn't, isn't that to leave them stranded, to kind of pull one over on the disciples of, way to go listening to me. Now I'm going to leave you out here. That Jesus' response, the heart of the Lord, is to initiate and to respond and to move toward. As we keep reading in verse 25, it says that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. 
and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In John's gospel, he records the same, the same event and puts the detail in there that Matthew doesn't put in. The boat is three miles from shore. So the boat is three miles from where Jesus is praying and Jesus goes out to his disciples on the boat. Now, I don't know what Jesus' mile time was or if he ran out or walked out or, or, or what. I don't know what exactly that looked like. But Jesus pursued his disciples three miles on a stormy water. It's amazing. It's not just classic Jesus. Jesus sees his disciples in need, straining at the oars, trying to follow him, doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and they're struggling. And Jesus' response is to initiate towards them, to go to them three miles. And he gets close enough to their boat, gets within an eyeshot of the boat, and you have the disciples. A handful of them were professional fishermen. They've been on the boat hundreds of hours, maybe even thousands of hours in their life. The rest of them lived in an agrarian society around a lot of water, so they wouldn't be foreign to boats, that they would have been used to boats, been used to storms, being on the boat in the middle of the night like, like it is when Jesus comes to them. And they see in the distance uh, something that they call as a ghost, some sort of spirit, some, man, we've been on the boat, been on water a lot in our lives, but I've never seen something like that, like that there's something, there's a figure walking on water. I know that there's fish, I know that there's birds, but we've never seen that before. And they cry out in fear in verse 26. They're terrified. It's a ghost. And I love the, the claim in verse 27 that Matthew includes. It says, immediately, Jesus speaks into their fear. Immediately in the midst of their fear and trepidation and terror, Jesus says, take heart. In the NIV, it says, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. I love that Jesus' response to their terror and their confusion and they're straining at the oars is to initiate towards them. And when they're scared, when they need him, they need some peace. Jesus says, take courage, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. I also think that it's interesting that Jesus' response isn't to immediately stop the storm. Isn't to immediately make the wind go away and the waves to stop crashing into the boat. That Jesus gives them his presence. He assures them with his presence. But he doesn't just snap his fingers and change the circumstances just yet. The storm calms down in verse 32, but we're not there yet. Tension number two that I see in this passage that I think relates to us and I think will hopefully land for us is this idea of, man, I know Jesus is for me, but life doesn't seem any easier. That in the midst of, I'm trying to follow Jesus, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to love my kids, I'm trying to be the best employee, the best boss that I can be, I'm trying my best. It feels like everything is against me. And then sometimes I know that God is there. I go to church, or I read my Bible, or I listen to a song, and I'm reminded intellectually of the presence of God, where Jesus shows up and kind of reveals himself, and you have that, that feeling like, all right, I know that the Lord is there, but then we look around at our circumstances, and we're still in the middle of a storm. I talk with a lot of, just with Young Life and student ministry, a lot of high school, college age, middle school folks that are kind of in a transition period. Like, man, I've been praying about what college to go to or what kind of my next career path is. And I'm praying and praying and praying. I'm trying to do the right thing. And I know God hears me, but I also feel way more confused than I did six months ago. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe there's a parent out there who's trying to love their kids, trying to have intentional conversations with their kids. And they're trying really, really hard. They're doing the right thing. And they know that God cares about their kids. And they know that God hears their prayers. But it's like, Lord, like, man, my kid is still kind of go, doing their own thing and going their own way. I think we feel that tension. If I know Jesus is there for me, but my life doesn't seem any easier. And I, I, I think I'm convinced in, our, in an ideal world, we would be just be totally at peace with Jesus' presence. 
that we'd be like, all right, Jesus is there. It's okay if my life is crazy, if there's a storm in my life. I'm totally okay with that. That would be in the ideal world, but I'm a sinner. My guess is you are too. You know, the scripture says you are too. But that, that we, we, we want more. And I love how Jesus speaks into that, that more, that he gives us more than just his presence, as we'll see as we keep reading. Just before we keep reading, just to recap so far, Jesus feeds the 5,000 earlier in Matthew 14. It's a miracle. It's not just classic Jesus. He takes five stinking loaves and two fish and feeds thousands of people. It's unbelievable. Then he dismisses the crowd and he sends his disciples away and they go into a storm and Jesus spends time alone with the Lord and Jesus walks three miles on water. It's amazing. It's another miracle. He walks on water. The person who has dominion over creation walks on water out to the disciples in the, in the midst of the disciples' fear and confusion, in verse 26, Jesus says, take heart, it's me, don't be afraid. He immediately enters into their fear and gives them his presence, reminds them, reassures them of his presence. Here's where we pick up in verse 28. It says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, there's that word again, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, the wind stopped, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So when I'm kind of picturing this story, a lot of the details aren't there. I'm trying to uh, kind of fill in some gaps to help us imagine this and picture this a little bit. That Peter, ever the brash one of the friends group, the brash one of the disciples, gets up and says, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. And I don't know if he was doing it to show off for his friends. I don't know if he had a moment of belief. I don't know what his reasoning was, but it's met with Jesus saying, come on out. Like, all right, come on. And I picture, I picture Peter stands up in the boat, and the rest of his disciples are kind of in the background. And if you've ever had a friend, you know, ask a, a girl out or ask someone to homecoming or you've ever had a coworker go into the, go into the office and ask for a promotion or something, you're just kind of watching, waiting, waiting to someone do something. Someone else is doing something risky and you're just kind of watching, saying, all right, what's going what's gonna to happen here? And the rest of the disciples are in the boat kind of watching and Peter, picture, steps to the edge of the boat and his eyes, his gaze is fixed on Jesus, the one who invited him, the one who said, come on out, the one who had already walked three miles on the water Peter gets to the edge of the boat, and he has a decision to make. Is he going to sit back down, or is he going to take a step out towards Jesus? And he gets to the edge of the boat, and, you know, I know there's a lot of different definitions of faith. Hebrews 11, it's a robust definition. There's a lot of theological definitions. I think that this is an acted version in the simplest way of faith, that he gets to the edge of the boat, and he has one foot in the boat, and he's got one foot hovering over the water. And he's got 51% of his weight on his back foot in the boat. And in a moment, with his eyes, his gaze fixed on Jesus, he begins to take a step. And here's the guy, Peter, professional fisherman, been on the boat hundreds, thousands of hours. He had gotten out of the boat after a day of fishing, probably a few thousand times. Every single time in Peter's life where he had gotten out of the boat to jump into the water, not once has the water ever been like concrete. Every single time in Peter's life when he gets out of a boat, jumps into a puddle of water, he sinks to the bottom. But he has his gaze, his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he takes this step, the step of faith, the step of a lifetime, and it catches him. And again, if you're the disciples there, it's like, holy smokes, this is, what is going on? This is amazing. Peter takes another step. He's got his gaze fixed on Jesus, and another step, 
and another step, and another step, and another step with his eyes fixed on Jesus. And then as the scriptures say, that he takes his eyes off of Jesus. His gaze is diverted. Something else catches his eye, and he sees the wind, and he sees the waves. He gets distracted, and he begins to sink. And then he cries, I think, a great, a great prayer. I don't know what your scripture memory is like, but here's an easy prayer to memorize. He says, Lord, save me. I love the simplicity of that, Lord, save me. As he's sinking down in the water, I love how Matthew says, immediately Jesus catches him. Peter's sinking down to the the ocean in the midst of the storm, maybe about to drown, and Lord, save me. And down he sees Jesus' hand, and he grabs him. And he pulls him up, and he saves him. And then Jesus says something interesting to me in verse 31. He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I want to pause here. I think that it's interesting. Jesus could have said a, a lot of things here, but he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I think on one hand, he could have crushed Peter. He could have said, Peter, you idiot. How could you? You failure. You're not worthy to be my disciple. You know, next. Like, he could have absolutely crushed Peter. He doesn't do that. And on the other hand, he could have said, Peter, way to go. I'm so proud of your lack of faith. I'm so glad you took your eyes off me. Way to go. He doesn't say that either. That Jesus Christ, as John 1 says, the only person in human history who's full of grace and full of truth. That Jesus Christ, God Almighty, threads the needle and has coached Jesus for a minute. He doesn't crush him. He doesn't affirm his lack of faith. He says, Peter, you have little faith, buddy. Like, why did you doubt? You know I cared about you. You were doing so great. You had your gaze fixed on me. You took a risk. You stepped towards me. You left everything behind in the boat and stepped towards me to follow me. And you were doing so great, but then you failed. You, you have little faith. You didn't have no faith, but you had little faith. Jesus coaches them up. I love that, full of grace and truth. They pick them up and they get back in the boat. And in verse 32, the minute that Jesus is in the boat with them, the wind dies down, the wind ceases. And it's not just classic Jesus. It's another miracle that the, the one who created creation, when he's in the boat, the wind stops. And in verse 33, everyone in the boat, Peter and the rest of the disciples, turn to Jesus and say, truly, you are the Son of God. They all come to the same conclusion. And a couple verses later, verses 34 to 36, they land in Gennesaret, where they're going to the other side of the lake, and it says they land, they get to shore, and word gets around that Jesus is there. It says that they bring all of the lame, all of the sick, all of the infirmity, and anyone who just touches the edge of Jesus' cloak is healed. They land in Gennesaret, and anyone who touches Jesus Near and ride, tall, short, male, female, doesn't matter. Anyone who touches Jesus is healed. And again, it's not just classic Jesus. Anyone who touches him is healed. I love that. It's another miracle. The miracles just keep, keep coming and keep coming. But here's where I see the tension in these couple verses. I think for Peter, and my guess is, is for us, is that we have these moments of bold belief, but we also wind up soaking wet. That we have these tension of, man, I have these moments where with my gaze fixed on Jesus... My gaze fixed on Jesus, everything is going great, and I'm taking steps of faith, I'm initiating towards the Lord, but man, oftentimes I try to do the right thing, and I'm locked in on Jesus, and I have great days, and then also, you know, I, I come home and I yell at my kids, or I'm selfish, or I'm short with my spouse, and we have these tension, these moments where it's like, man, Lord, I'm trying to do great, some days are great, I wake up early and read my Bible, and I'm locked in, I share my faith with a coworker. Maybe a sin that you've been battling, you've conquered for the day, and then you also have these moments where, like Peter, you just, Lord, save me, I'm soaking wet. Like, I failed again. And it can be really, really frustrating to ride this, uh, to ride this roller coaster. And I love how in the midst of that, 
that Jesus doesn't let Peter splash around, doesn't teach him a lesson by letting him sink for a while because he failed, that he picks him up soaking wet and all, and he picks him up, he coaches him up, and brings him back in the boat. Um, in 2007, I had just finished my freshman year of high school uh, on the west side of Cleveland at Bay High School, and uh, I did Young Life in high school, and a handful of folks from our high school went to a Young Life camp up in the Adirondack Mountains, Saranac Lake, in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, Cleveland is not super mountainous. Lake Erie's there, but it caught on fire, you know, so you can imagine my, my joy as a 15-year-old being at, in the Saranac Lake, the Adirondack Mountains, and we show up to Young Life camp, and it's amazing. You're in the mountains, the lake's there, it's huge, it's beautiful. There's a ropes course, and you can go tubing, and there's 500 other high schoolers there, and we're playing basketball, and it's just a blast. I had an amazing week. That's the week where I, I gave my life to the Lord. I prayed with my young life leader to accept Christ. Best decision I ever made in my life has never been the same since that. But one of the things about Saranac that's unique to other young life camps is every, every kid, every high schooler who goes to Saranac gets to parasail, gets to do the parasail. Will you throw that, that picture up? Uh, this is the parasail, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a death trap, and uh, it's just, you go off the back of a boat, and it's kind of this parachute that, that takes you up several hundred feet into the air, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in gravity, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, it's like, I like my feet on the ground, I'm not a big heights guy, Ferris wheel, no thank you, I'm about a 15-inch vertical leap, that's as high as I care to get, I don't like being out on the open waters either, you know, I'm like, I like my feet on the stinking ground. And so you can imagine me at 15 years old, having a great time at camp. Uh, I'm there with other folks from my high school. There are some are older than me, juniors and seniors. I just finished my freshman year, and I'm terrified to go on the parasail, but I also don't want to be a chicken. And I don't want to be the only guy from my school who didn't go, and I'm, they'll, they'll tell the girls, and you know, I'm like, all right, so I'm having this, this dilemma, like this mental breakdown all week of like, all right, am I going to do the parasail? So it's towards the end of the week, maybe day four or five, and uh, it's time for our cabin to do the parasail. So we strap on our life jackets, and I'm like shaking. I'm like, no, guys, I'm just cold. I'm not scared. You know? And uh, so we get on the boat, and uh, my young life leader is a great young life leader. I think he could tell in my eyes that I was absolutely terrified. And Andy uh, goes, hey, Kyle, you want to you be our partner? You go in twos up on the parasail. He's like, you want to be our partner? I'm like, yes, please. That sounds great. It's like, and we can go last. I was like, thank you. That sounds, sounds awesome. So we got out in the middle of Saranac Lake, the middle of the mountains. It's beautiful. And... The first group of guys goes up. I'm looking at it, and I'm like, that thing's pretty flimsy. You know, I'm like, how does the physics work? You know, I'm like, I don't know how this whole thing works. The guys go up, and they're making faces on the way down, and they're acting like they're running in the air, and they're dancing and all that. And they come back down, and they're like, that was the best thing I've ever done in my life. It was so fun. You guys are going to love it. The next two go up. They have fun. They're screaming. They're laughing. They're singing up there, and they come back down, and they're having, oh, did you see the bird up there? Did you see the mountains? Did you see that side? And there's this camaraderie of the people that have already been. And I'm sitting in the boat, and I'm kind of like half terrified, but half like, that doesn't seem too, 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 too bad. Another two go. That was unbelievable. You guys are going to love it. I've never parasailed in my life. It's so great. And the time comes for Andy and I to go, the last ones. And I don't know if someone hit me on the back of the head or I blacked out or what, but like I, I end up, I'm strapped in, and I'm, before I know it, like I'm, I'm in the air. It's too late. And I'm in the air, and it really is unbelievable. It's amazing. You're up above the tree line, 500 feet in the air, and it's quiet. It's a little bit windy. Adirondack Mountains are there. The lake's there. The sun is shining. It's absolutely beautiful. And we get back down after parasailing, and uh, it's one of those things. I don't know if you have any in your life where it's like, I'm glad I did that, but I also never want to do that again. You know, like, I'm glad I did that, but that's my quota for five years. You know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm good for now. And, um, it was one of those things, but here's, here's what I know from that, from that time, that experience was it really is one thing to watch, kind of to live vicariously through other people, 
to watch from the side of the boat, to watch other people experience fun and adventure and life up on the parasail. It's one thing to watch and to see it. It's a whole other thing to experience it for yourself, to strap on the harness and get up there 500 feet and be like, holy smokes, this is, this is crazy. This is risk. This is adventure. And when I think about this passage, I think a lot about the Lord. I think about Christ. I think about how he feeds the 5,000 even before the passage starts. I think about how he spends time alone with the Lord. I think about how he sends the disciples into a storm, but he doesn't leave them there to fend for themselves. He walks out three miles to them. He initiates to them in the midst of their fear. He says, take heart, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. He gives them this presence in the midst of their fear that he calls Peter out onto the water. There's been two people who have ever walked on water in the course of human history. One of them is Jesus, so he kind of doesn't count, and the other one is Peter. And he calls Peter to walk on water, and he actually does it, and then he sinks, and he fails, and he says, Lord, save me, and Jesus Christ reaches out his hand and grabs Peter, and he saves him. They get back in the boat, and the wind dies down. It's completely calm. They get to the other side, and they heal anyone who touches Jesus. I can't help but read this passage and just think that Jesus is just scattered along. It's unbelievable, the person of Christ. But I also am left with this nagging question and this idea of who, who experienced Jesus the most to this day 2,000 years ago? It's interesting, they all come to the same conclusion in verse 33. Everyone in the boat, both Peter and the disciples who were sitting watching, they all come to the, the conclusion of truly you are the Son of God. They all come to the same conclusion, but I can't help but think that Peter got to experience Jesus in a little bit more visceral way, a little bit deeper of a way, a little bit more intimate of a way that day because he took a risk and he failed. And he was in danger and he was sinking. He got to look the Savior in the eyes and say, Lord, help me. And he got to see the tenderness and the compassion of Jesus as he reached out his hand and caught him from sinking. And he got to be held by, by Jesus as they get back in the boat. And he got to, give a pep, got to hear a pep talk from Jesus of, you little faith, why did you doubt? I can't help but think that Peter got a little bit closer, saw a little bit more, experienced a little bit more, a little bit closer of a look of Christ that day. You know, I... I don't think Peter or anyone else, any of the great saints of the faith, men and women, have ever lived their lives and looked back on their life saying, you know what, you know what I wish I would have done less of? I wish I would have had my eyes fixed on Jesus and taken less risks. You know what was a real waste of my time is focusing on Jesus, listening to him, listening to his call for my life, sharing my faith with other people. I actually wish I would have stayed in the boat more. I don't think there's a single believer one day will be in heaven and get to ask ask him, you know, great men and women. But I think for us, just this idea of moving from spectator to participant, I think sometimes we just don't know where to start. And that's the last, the last tension I want us to just look at this morning. It's this idea of I want to move from spectator to participant. I don't want to just be in the boat watching other people experience the Lord. I don't want to just watch other people share their faith with others. I don't want to just watch other people experience life to the full, the risk, to follow Jesus, to have my eyes locked on Him, to have these moments of intimacy with the Father. I want to move from spectator participant, but I just, don't, I just don't know where to start. My hope and prayer this morning is that we would consider what it looks like to participate in building the kingdom, to not just let the experts do it, the pastors and the elders and kind of the, the, the A team. Here's what I know. I know following Jesus that there's no JV team and no one rides the bench. If you're a believer in Christ, you're part of his team, like we're all in the game. And my hope and prayer this morning is that it might be a call for us to get from the bench to on the field and to raise your hand and be like, man, I don't know exactly what that looks like to be a participant, but I'm in. I want to I take a step of faith. I want to, I with my eyes locked on Jesus, take a risk for him. 
wrote down just a couple examples of maybe what that would be. My hope is, is that the wheels start turning for you a little bit. Maybe it means inviting a neighbor over for dinner. Maybe a neighbor that you don't know super well or that maybe you asked the church and they wouldn't come to initiate with them and say, hey, would you, would you come grab a meal? I'm, I'm buying, you know, I'll, I'll cook to invite them in your house. Maybe it's losing 10 minutes of sleep, sending your alar- setting your alarm 10 minutes earlier to wake up to pray, spend time with the Lord. Maybe that's a, a, the step of faith this morning. Maybe it's sharing your faith with a coworker or a classmate that you've, been, that you've been building a relationship with. And maybe it's with your eyes focused on Jesus, taking a step of faith and, and sharing. Maybe it's seeking out service or leadership opportunities at church or in the community. When maybe you spent too long watching other people do it, that, man, maybe it's time to say, man, I, I think I can do that. I think I can serve. I think I can get my hands dirty in that way. My hope and prayer is that we wouldn't be an in-the-boat kind of church church that kind of watches their professionals do it, but that we would get in the game, get engaged with our eyes focused on Jesus. We're not just stepping out on the boat in random directions, you know, on a whim. We're, we're, our eyes are locked, fixed on Jesus. We're stepping out of the boat, knowing that we're going to fail. This tension of, I want to follow the Lord. I want to do the right thing. I want to take risks, but I'm also a knucklehead. I'm selfish, and I fail, and I sink. And man, I've tried it so many times, and I've failed so many times that we would have confidence to look at the Lord and say, Lord, I want to hear what you're saying. I want to follow you. I know I'm going to sink. I know I'm going to end up soaking wet, but I want to be in the game. I want to experience life with you. That's my hope for this morning. One last piece uh, before we wrap up this, this morning is I would be crazy to look at this passage and not think about and consider the power of Jesus. Jesus' power of the created order. That he created water. Colossians 1.15 says that all things were created by him and for him. So he created water, so it makes sense to me that he can walk on water. He created human beings, so it makes sense to me that he can heal human beings. That he is absolutely all-powerful. And I think it's interesting in all our culture that I think we're a little bit uh, weary of people that are all-powerful, people with too much authority. I think it's because every time we flick on the news, we see someone in a position of power or authority, leverage that authority, not for the benefit of the gain of other people, but to tear down, to exploit, to abuse. Like every time we turn on the news, Another story of someone in position of authority, power, using it to hurt, using to make themselves go higher. And I love how Jesus, in this passage, and also with his life, he doesn't use his power to abuse, doesn't use his power to exploit, doesn't use his power to tear down at the expense of him being higher, but he actually gives his power up. In Philippians 2, Paul says that he humbled himself, Jesus Christ, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That in the midst of this power over all of creation, over all of humanity, all authority, as Steve was saying, in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus, that he lays down his power on the cross through his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven so that we might live. And he lays it down, this, this crazy seesaw of he lays down his power so that we might live with him. I think there's two groups of people in the audience this morning. I think one might be someone, maybe for the first time, kind of hearing about some of this God stuff that maybe for the first time it's you're kind of considering faith and you're in the room and you're not totally sold on it but you're kind of checking things out my encouragement and hope and prayer and question is what would it look like for you today to take a step of faith to have your eyes locked on Jesus to consider what it would look like to follow him you know I don't think Peter when he got onto the boat I don't think he had all the answers but I think he knew enough he knew that he was looking at Jesus and he knew Jesus told him to come he knew enough. And I know for us, we don't know all the answers. I don't know every answer to everything. I don't know what five years are going to look like. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. But I do know that if we're looking at Jesus and we're listening to what he has to say, that that's a pretty good place to start. 
And so if you're someone who's never considered a relationship with Jesus, my hope and prayer and invitation this morning is to look at Jesus, focus on him. If your gaze fixed on him and take a step of faith, what would that look like? To put your faith and trust from, to transfer it from the boat, yourself in control to a relationship with Jesus. The other group or subset of people, I think are folks, maybe have been around, around God for longer. Maybe you've been sitting in the boat for years. And there's this, this tension of, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm, it's pretty comfortable in the boat. Like, I, I, like, I like it. You got a good view here. You know, well, my hope and prayer is that this morning would be an encouragement and invitation to what would it look like for you to move from spectator to participant and to kind of have your ears perked up to the voice of the Lord and to get out of the boat and to take a step of faith. Not a step of faith to Jesus for the first time, but to be open and attentive to what the Lord is, has in your life. That what's that next step, step of faith for you? So would we as a church be folks who would take the step of a lifetime to follow Jesus together? Let me say a prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thanks for loving us. I thank you for just this passage, this true story, God, and about how you initiate towards your disciples, how in the midst of a storm, you move towards them, God, and you give them your presence. You don't fix everything right away, but you're there, you're with them. I thank you that you're with us. Lord, I pray for folks who are experiencing some pretty significant storms this morning. Lord, some things that they're pretty frustrated and fed up with. I think of disease and depression, and heartbreak and heartache and loss. Lord, would you give them your presence? Would you remind them of that this morning? God, would you help them to hang on and to follow you? Lord, and to hear your voice. I thank you that you invite us, Lord, to the step of a lifetime, this journey, this adventure of a life with you. I pray for folks who are maybe considering taking that step for the first time, that you would give them the boldness and the confidence and the courage to take that step. And I, lastly, Lord, I think of folks who maybe have been in the boat for a little bit too long, spectating, watching other people build the kingdom, watching other people participate in what you're doing, Lord. I pray you give us the confidence, the boldness, the courage, Lord, with our gaze fixed on you, that we might take a step of faith, step of faith and learn and figure out what it means to participate in building your kingdom. We love you. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.